Well, good morning. I'm Tim Herring. I thought I would introduce myself because I've been in and out so much lately. Uh, I appreciated Bruce's talk last week about the purpose of work. I just love that idea that our work is supposed to be worship. You know, you don't have to be in Christian ministry to be in ministry as you serve the Lord through, through work. Uh, the week before that, I was uh, supposed to be here, but a close family member tested positive for COVID Saturday night. So occasionally I have to make that fateful call to someone on staff saying, hey, uh, can you step in for me? Um, so I didn't want to be the uh, cause of a spreader event. So I didn't uh, come in two weeks ago. I didn't get it. I didn't end up getting it, but I didn't want to take a chance. Anyway, today, uh, as Josh mentioned, we're going to begin a new series called Face to Face. We want to talk about the various encounters that Jesus had with people, people like you and people like me. And today we're going to look at the story of when Jesus met John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the guy that had the privilege of introducing the Messiah to the world. But in addition to that, he was related to Jesus, as we'll see in a minute. And their first encounter with one another, John and Jesus, took place before they were even born. Now, most of the time in this series, I'm going to be talking about the individual to whom Jesus is speaking. I want to talk about in terms of their encounter, that person. But today, our focus is on, on Jesus and what is revealed about Jesus when Jesus and John the Baptist interact with one another. And it really is significant because of who John the Baptist was and mostly because of who Jesus was and is. John the Baptist, again, was given the privilege of introducing the Messiah to the world, but, but he was called by Jesus as the greatest person who lived up to that point, or at least Jesus worded it this way, Nobody who's been born in this world of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. So he was this great and a wonderful person, and yet when John meets Jesus, there's just no comparison between the two, and it begins to raise the question exactly who is this, who is this Jesus? And I want to focus on the Jesus part. Now, I grew up in a Christian home, as you know, or many of you know, some of you don't, but my dad was a pastor, and, and most of my life I've had the understanding that Jesus was God in the flesh. He was part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons of one essence. God in his Trinity never acted independently. Any of them did. They acted as one. That's why we say there's one God. But then you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it has only been until recently that I've really come to understand that Jesus was actually Yahweh in the Old Testament. Yahweh is the, the Hebrew name for God. It was the name by which God revealed himself to Moses when Moses came up across, upon this burning bush that wasn't being consumed. And Moses asked, what's your name? And he said, my name is, and the name was given was Yahweh. It's a name that means I am that I am. It's a reference to, I think, the fact that he's the self-existent one. And this is something Jesus did reveal about himself, but he did it kind of in a coded way. <clears throat> but he was, you remember, or some of you may remember in the Gospel of John, on one occasion, Jesus was speaking with the religious leaders and he made this statement. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, just the fact that Jesus claimed to exist before Abraham is kind of a big deal. It would mean that Jesus would have to have been either God or an angel, you know, to pre-exist Abraham. 
But the way Jesus worded it is significant because he didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He said before Abraham was, I am. And he chose the name of God from the Old Testament. I am that I am, Yahweh. And when he said that, they, they understood what he was saying. They picked up stones to stone him to death. They accused him of blasphemy. And suddenly we're raised with this question, is this, is this who Jesus really was. And of course, we'll see in a minute, in addition to that, that he was um, the creator of all. Now, the story of John the Baptist and Jesus actually occurs before the two are adults, as we'll see in a minute here. And, and John the Baptist, I mentioned a moment ago, was related to Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist's mother was a woman named Elizabeth, and, and Elizabeth was related to Jesus' mother, Mary. And so some of your versions of the Bible in Luke chapter 1 say they were cousins. Uh, but the Greek word that's used for cousins there is a much broader term. It could mean a variety of family relationships. I would suggest that they were second cousins. And you can wrestle through that if you are interested to figure out Why? But anyway, if you know the story of John the Baptist and his mom Elizabeth, you know that she had been unable to have children. Uh, She'd been married for many years. She was unable to have a child. And then by the time we're introduced to her in the Gospel of Luke, she's well past the age where she, it's even possible to have a child. And suddenly, an angel appears to Elizabeth's husband, Zachariah. Now, Zachariah was a priest And he got the privilege on one occasion to be the one that would walk into the inner curtain where the special candles were, and he had to go in alone. He was chosen for this by God. And he gets in behind the curtain, and Gabriel the angel approached him and said, Elizabeth, your wife is going to have a child. Now, John didn't believe it. In fact, for a year or nine months or so, he couldn't speak because he didn't believe the angel. You know, Gabriel said, I stand in the presence of God. If I say something, it's going to happen or whatever. But nine months or six months, I'm sorry, after that happened, after that incident. And by the way, that very unfolding of the fact that she was going to have a child under these circumstances should be a signal to everybody, this child is really, really special. This child is really, really unique. And I think his greatness is related to the fact he was chosen of all people ever born to introduce the Messiah, the Son of God, to the world. But six months after Elizabeth became pregnant, the same Gabriel that had talked with her went to Mary and said to Mary, you're going to have a child, but this child is going to be conceived of the Holy Spirit, not not, not from a guy. Now, that had never happened before. I mean, Elizabeth's pregnancy was really pretty miraculous, but this had never happened before. And again, we begin to say, well, wait a minute, what does this mean about Jesus? Well, it means his father wasn't a human father. He was born of Mary, but his father was God, and therefore he was the son of God. Now, Jesus and John the Baptist, again, had an encounter with one another before they were even born, in the womb, and that's where we're gonna start. Because Gabriel told Mary as a sign that he was speaking the truth about this child that she was gonna bear, that 
her relative, Elizabeth, was also pregnant. And when Mary heard that, she decided to go visit Elizabeth. So it's the two women both expecting, like, I'm going to go visit Elizabeth. We're going to have some some time together here as these two mothers-to-be. And that's where we pick up the story in Luke 1, 39 to 43. We read, in those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby inside her leaped. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, you are the most blessed of women, women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That's a profound statement. It's really profound. This is one of those statements in the Bible, there are several like this, where I think that sometimes the Spirit of God comes upon someone and they say something, and then immediately after they say it, they stop and say, what did I just say? How is it? She, you know, Mary comes in with Jesus and immediately the baby, John the Baptist, knows. He leaps for joy in her womb. That's their first encounter. Filled with the Spirit, she acknowledges that the baby inside of Mary is her Lord. How am I so privileged that the mother of my Lord, that's my Lord inside of you. It's amazing. What does it mean? Of course, it means he's the son of God and God the son. Elizabeth acknowledged she's not even worthy to have Mary in her home because of the baby inside of her. But now we fast forward the story and you have Jesus and John the Baptist both have grown up. John the Baptist is baptizing people. And, and he's preparing people for the arrival of this Messiah. And at this point in the story, he doesn't know it's Jesus. I suspect he suspected it was, but he didn't know it was Jesus. In fact, Jesus' identity is going to be revealed at the baptism itself. Now, what I want to say about John's baptism, and I think this is important to understand, is that John's baptism was a different baptism than we do. You know, well, two weeks ago we had a baptism here. And we call it believer's baptism. Uh, we get baptized because it's an outward sign of our faith in Christ who died, was buried, and raised again. And that's primarily what's being illustrated when you go under the water. My trust is in a Savior who died for me and was buried. And then we usually bring him back up because our faith is in a Savior who rose again from the dead. And that's, that's the symbolism between, between, or in our baptism. But John's baptism was different. John's was a baptism of repentance. His job was to prepare people's hearts to receive Christ. Now, I think there's an application for us here today because God knew that if people had things in their lives that were coming between them and God, then when Jesus came, they wouldn't be ready to receive him. The gospel writer John, and he's, by the way, a different person than John the Baptist, the gospel writer John said this in John 3.20, everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it so his deeds may not be exposed. And he was basically acknowledging that, that if people had these things in their lives that they knew were contrary to God and they weren't dealt with, they would not be attracted to the light when he came. So John's main job was to teach people, repent of your sin, deal with the things in your life, get right with God. And when that happens... 
It opens our spiritual eyes. It opens our ability to receive the light in a new way, and that's what John was trying to do. And so in Matthew 3.11, we read John's words. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. And of course, that baptism was a picture of the washing away of sin. It's a little bit different. It's, if somebody acknowledged I'm a sinner and I repent of it, then there's the water and they would be baptized as a sign of the washing away of that sin. And so John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who's coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, up to this point again, no prophet had been as great as John the Baptist, which is saying a lot. I mean, you think of Moses and Abraham and Daniel and some of the people of the Old Testament, and he was the greatest, but he acknowledged the identity of this Jesus is so great that I'm not worthy even to bend down and take off his sandals. That, someone with more honor should do that because that's how great he is. And now we're starting to see a little bit of a theme about the identity of this person. Now, I do want to mention this because some of you might have a question about it, that Jesus was baptized by John, and if John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, why would Jesus be baptized by John? Because he never sinned. Jesus never sinned. So why would he subject himself to a baptism of repentance? And the reason was this. One of the other significant points about baptism in biblical times is that when you submitted yourself to someone's baptism whether it was a Jewish baptism or something else, you were acknowledging that you were submitting yourself under the baptizer and their teaching. And what was interesting about Jesus, you know, John the Baptist said, I don't want to baptize you, you need to baptize me. But Jesus said, no, we got to do this. Why? He was affirming John's message. He's saying, he was saying, I'm going to put myself under your teaching here because your teaching is about me. He's affirming the message so that the crowd would listen to John the Baptist, and so he went through with it himself. But let's pick up the story in verses 29 and 30, where we get to our takeaway. We read, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who surpassed me because he existed before me. Now, from these two verses, I get my takeaway, which is this. Jesus is the Lamb of God and the Lord of all. He's both. And I don't know that John the Baptist, I think he had trouble putting this together. How could he be the Lord of all, but also the Lamb of God? He's both. I want to talk about the Jesus being the Lord of all first. What John said in verse 30 to the crowd is really interesting. Again, it's one of those statements where you'd stop and say, what did you just say? In verse 30, he said, this is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who has surpassed me specifically because he existed before me. Now, if you're just reading the Bible, quickly, you'll just jump right over that. Now, think about it for a moment, but when you think of the story I told about the fact that John was born first. The baby John pre-existed the baby Jesus. So he was the older of the two. And yet what he's saying here is Jesus is greater because he came before me. And once again, we're acknowledging, he's acknowledging that this one, 
Who's this one who has always existed or existed before me? Who's been born after me, but he's greater because he existed way back then. Well, he's the son of God and God the son. And that was the conclusion he arrived at in the next few verses. John 1, 31 to 34, John said, I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I watched the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the spirit descending and resting on, he's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, which by the way, only God could do that. And then verse 34, I have seen and testified that he is the son of God. Now that statement is profound as well. In biblical times, in, in the Jewish society, if you call someone the son of something, someone or whatever, you're, you're basically saying they have the same characteristics as. So when Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, which he did often, he was emphasizing his humanity, the humanity side of his personhood. He was also, by the way, pointing to a prophecy in Daniel that proved he was God. But Jesus was the son of man. But to call him the son of God means that he has the characteristics, the qualities of his heavenly father. He's like his father. As Josh mentioned earlier, the verse that says where Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. I and the father are one. It's the claim that Jesus made. Now the gospel writer, John, starts his gospel earlier in this exact same chapter by making that point, by helping people see who he was. In John 1 and verse 3, the gospel writer John said, all things were created through him, referring to Jesus. And apart from Jesus, not one thing was created that has been created. Now over the years, I've, I've wrestled with this question just in my faith to say, is it really true? I mean, was it really true that Jesus was God in the flesh? Is it really true that he was our creator, that he was, when you read Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then I read some verses like this, and I say, it's true. He's the Lord of all. He's Yahweh, the creator. Of course, all of, cre- all of the Trinity was involved with creation, you understand. But he was right there. And this is important for us to understand because if Jesus were just a man, he can't do anything for you. Not a thing. You know, we talk about Jesus sacrificing himself and being a great example, the sacrificer. If he's just a man, what benefit was that to you? How does that help you? So what, he was selfless. He goes to a cross and dies. You might look at him and say, well, I was selfless. How does that help you? If he was just a man, for whom did he even die in his day? It wasn't the disciples, they ran away. The only person I know that benefited from Jesus dying on the cross, if he's just a man, was Barabbas. He was the guy that got the free pass. He didn't end up having to die. But, you know, people say, well, Jesus sacrificed himself. For whom did he sacrifice himself if he's just a man? Of what benefit was it to anybody? You know what he should have done if he were just a man? What he should have done is taught for 20 more years. What he should have done is when they accused him of claiming he was God, he should have said, that's not me. And he could have continued his ministry if he were just a man, but he was not just a man. 
He was God in the flesh, and therefore, he's able to be the savior of the world. And so this point is so essential. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that's a reference to his deity. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be delivered from the penalty of your sin. I say often around here, it comes down to these three things, understanding these three things who Jesus was, what he came to do, and then what the appropriate response is. And all of these are found in this verse. Who who was he? He's the son of God and God the son. What did he come to do? Die in our place, be buried and rise again from the dead. And what's the response? Faith. If you believe in your heart. When it says there that you believe that God raised him from the dead, it includes the cross and the burial. All of it is wrapped up in that one sentence there. And so for some of you, my challenge is to turn to Jesus Christ to be your savior. For those of you that are Christians already, though, when you realize that he's the Lord, it should have some bearing in how we live our lives. You know, we we should look at this and say, you know, you died for me, you are my Lord, and therefore, and it can flesh out in a variety of different ways, which I'll close with in a little bit. But anyway, let's talk about the second part of this where he was called the Lamb of God. Let's look at verse 29 again. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what did John have in his mind when he said that? According to a scholar by the name of E.A. Blum, the Passover Lamb from Exodus 12, you could read that story, and Isaiah's mention of the Messiah's likeness to a lamb in Isaiah 53, 7 may have been in John's mind, but here's the key. John, by the Holy Spirit, saw Jesus as the sacrificial victim who was to die for the sin of the world. The Holy Spirit revealed to him that this was going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the Lamb of God and the Lord of all. Now, help us grab a hold of this a little bit. I want to mostly wrap up my comments with a story that's a little longer. Some of you have heard me tell this story, especially if you're in a Bible study that I lead, but I want to talk about this Lamb of God thing and the significance of it just a little bit through an encounter I had many years ago. Uh, I have only on a couple of occasions, well, a few occasions, done what's called outdoor preaching. Uh, for those of you not familiar with outdoor preaching, I think it's based on this idea that the Apostle Paul used to go into a city, <clears throat> and if there was a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue there, he would go there and share the gospel with people. But if there wasn't a synagogue, he'd go to a public place where there were a lot of people, and he'd share the gospel, and he'd just raise his voice, and we call it preaching. You know, he'd preach to the crowd. He'd explain the problem of sin and the solution being God's own son, Jesus, the need to put your trust in Christ, and that's what he would do. And on three or four occasions, I have uh, done this outdoor preaching, always, I think, on college campuses. But I want to tell you about the first time that I did this. The year was a long, it was like another age. It was like 1982, you know. And um, I was a student at the Ohio State University, and I was leading a Bible study at my church. I wasn't a pastor. I just led a Bible study. It was a fairly large study, but I just was leading this Bible study, just a regular leader. One day, the pastors of the church I attended said, would you be willing to co-lead 
a group of 40 to 50 Ohio State University students down to the University of Florida in Gainesville during the spring break. What they wanted is instead of us using our college spring break to go and just have fun party someplace, they wanted us to go to the University of Florida. They were still in session and they wanted us to share the gospel message with the college students down there. And so I said, I'll do that. I'll, I'll co-lead that team. And so we jumped on a bus and a couple cars and we shot down to the University of Florida. Well, one day, the pastors of the church that we were cooperating with down there said, we want to do open-air preaching on the campus today. And so I said, well, that's fine. You know, that was what they wanted to do. And so there's this plaza area at the University of Florida. It's a, just a big grassy area. People throw Frisbees there, but it's a free speech area and everything else. Students are everywhere. And they wanted to do outdoor preaching there. And our group was providing the, the Insta crowd. You know what I mean? There were like 30 or 40 to 50 of us. And, and it looked like something's going on. They'd hear people preaching. They'd see the crowd and it would draw students. They'd all show up at this thing, you know. And so our little crowd of 40 or 50 turned to a couple hundred. And different ones began to take turns preaching on the, on the campus here, starting with the pastors of the church and a few other leaders, all of a sudden a horrifying thought hit me. They're gonna ask me. Oh no, they're gonna ask me to do this. I can't do that. I was the leader of this group though, and so they, I think they, they figured they could probably, I just knew that's probably what would happen, and so I began to think, what am I gonna say? If I'm asked to do this, and I realize, well, I've shared the gospel message before. I've talked about sin and Christ and Jesus and the importance of faith and trusting in him and everything. And so if they do ask me, maybe that's what I can do. And then all of a sudden, one of the pastors came over to me, tapped me and said, you're next. And, oh. and I did, frankly, I didn't have the guts to tell him I don't want to do it. It's too embarrassed to admit, I've never done this before. I don't want to do this before. So I went with the flow. It's like, I guess I'll do it. So suddenly it was my turn and I began to preach and a couple hundred college students there and, and I introduced myself. I say, you know, somebody that preaches on a campus like this, one of two things is true about that person. Either they're crazy. I mean, crazy people do stuff like this or... Maybe what they have to say is so important and they know it's true that they get past their fear and they do it. And that's what I said and then I began to share the gospel. As soon as I started, a guy appeared on the other side of the circle. And I say appeared, that's, he appeared. He was big. It wasn't his height, although he was taller than I was. The height wasn't the thing. He was muscular. He had his shirt off, and he was one muscle. I don't know how he moved. Just a massive thing, and he had a chain around his neck, and not some little chain. I'm not talking about a little bike chain. This could have held a ship in place. It was a huge, huge chain with the, and, and, and there he is. All of a sudden, there he shows up, and he begins walking toward me. One step, one step. And we got to the middle of the circle, he starts huffing, and then he starts swinging his arms like this, flexing his muscles. Every step, like this, he's walking right toward me. I think, oh Lord, what am I gonna do? I quickly prayed, Lord, you gotta give me the courage or the ability to ignore him completely, because this is a little distracting. 
And I didn't know if he was going to beat me up either. I did have in my mind that being that big and muscular, he probably can't move very fast. So I'd be able to get away. Kept doing that. Came right up to my face. Looked me in the face. And then, oddly, he just walked away. And I thought, that's just weird. Five minutes later, I was done with my preaching. We call it that. And Well, that afternoon our group decided to go about three miles away to an apartment complex that we knew was filled with college students. We were going to be taking a religious interest survey and then using the survey to get into the message of the gospel. After people answered our questions about various things, we were to turn it around and say, what about you? Would you like to know what the Bible has to say about the very questions that I've been asking you? And so I knocked on this guy's door. The door was actually partially opened and I knocked on the door and this student walks up, opens the door, takes a look at me and I begin my spiel. Hi, I'm Tim Herring. I'm taking a survey of college students and all of a sudden he interrupted me. He said, I know who you are. I know who you are. And I thought, no, you don't. Nobody knows who I am. I've never been down here at the University of Gainesville. Nobody knows who I am, you know. University of Florida in Gainesville and He said, no, you're one of those preachers. I saw you today. I was in the crowd. I'm one of the guys that gives you guys a hard time. And then he softened, his tone softened. And he said, I want to ask you a question there. I was there, he said, when that guy walked up to you with that chain, right up to your face. And he said, I don't understand where you got the courage. He says, just stand there, do what you did. And besides the grace of God, I reiterated the fact I was so sure the message was true, otherwise you couldn't get me to do it. You couldn't pay me enough to do it. In the course of talking with him, I discovered that he was from a Jewish background. And when I discover someone's from a Jewish background, I just love to talk with them. I'm fascinated by the fact that they're related to Abraham, you know, and they have this Jewish heritage and everything. And so as soon as I found that out, And this is bringing us up to our story here. You're wondering, what does this have to do with John the Baptist? I asked him, are you familiar with the Old Testament sacrificial system that that God had your descendants participate in? Are you familiar with the fact they used to sacrifice animals and altars and things? And he said, yeah. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Why? Why would God... Your God, from your scriptures, ask your people to take an innocent, beautiful animal that has no blemishes whatsoever and just kill it and shed its blood and then burn up the carcass. Why? I mean, it sounds cruel to me. That's what I said to him. It sounds cruel. Maybe sadistic. What God would require such a thing. And he said, I, have, I don't know. I never thought of it. I said, well, can I explain it from a Christian perspective anyway, what we believe? And he was was very interested, and so I began to explain it. I said, you know that in the Old Testament, you had the story of Adam and Eve, and God said, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, because if you eat of it, you'll die. And you remember how they did eat from the tree, and death came into the world, and he's nodding his head, yeah, he knows knows the story. And then I said, did you notice that right after that happened, you, you find Adam and Eve's kids sacrificing on an altar, Abel with the lamb, and the fruit of Cain, you know, and then, then the law comes in, Moses, and they're sacrificing animals and he got all the rules and everything else. I said, the reason that that was the case 
is that the penalty of sin is death. And so what they used to do is they'd bring their animal and they'd put their hands on the head of that animal and they'd confess their sin, symbolically transferring their sin to the animal. And then they'd kill it. And the animal was dying for the one offering it. The animal died so the one offering it could live. That was God's plan. The wages of sin is death that required this penalty. Death. But here's the problem. It's impossible for the blood of sheep and goats to take away sin of people. It's impossible. They're animals. It doesn't work. So why did God ask them to do it? They said it's because it was always meant to point to something else. It was meant to point to the day when God was going to send his own son to live a sinless life, blameless, without any blemishes, so that he might die on a cross in our place for our sin. The wages of sin is death, so Jesus died. And he was buried and raised again from the dead. It means God accepted the payment on our behalf. And then I brought, us, brought him to the story we just looked at. I said, you know, when Jesus appeared on the scene, the prophet, John the Baptist, said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was identifying Jesus as the one that was gonna do this, and that's why you have the cross. Why Jesus died. He was paying the price in full for all we've done wrong. And then I began to quote John 3.16. Said, you know, you probably heard this one. You know, it's the most famous verse in the Bible. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That this is something that you, you can't earn this. This is something you receive free as a gift. And as I was talking, and as, as soon as I quoted John 3.16, his, his eyes welled up with tears. He was getting ready to cry. His roommate came over and said, you're not still talking to this guy, only he didn't say guy. Something a little bit less kind. And this guy turned to him and said, you shut up. He's right. What he said is right. It's the truth. That's it right there. Then he turned back to me and he said, I will never give you preachers a hard time. What you're saying is the truth. And I think he, I'm confident he found Jesus that day. Got his name and number passed on to the leaders of the church there. He found Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now let's wrap up the story here by reading John 1, 35 to 39, and then we'll get to the application. We read again the next day John was standing. So it's the next day now. John was standing with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by. He said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about 10 in the morning. Now next week, Lord willing, I want to continue the story where Jesus began to recruit the disciples, the people that be with him for the next three years. I think the greatest question that can be asked of anyone is what will you do, do with Jesus? What will you do with him? Is he really the son of God and God the son? Is he the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Is he God's one and only solution to the problem of our sin? All of the Old Testament culminates in Jesus. The, the sacrifices, the temple worship, The entire Old Testament, the prophecies, the New Testament, even in Revelation, he's called the Lamb of God. 
Everything in the Bible points to this one named Jesus. This is why I'm saddened when people find another savior besides Jesus that they think can do it. No one's qualified like he is. The sinless one who became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Paul calls for us in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 to respond to this. He said, for by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift. For by grace, that's God's kindness, undeserved. For by grace you're saved. means to be delivered from the penalty of your sin. For by grace you're saved through faith. You make Jesus Christ the object of your trust. If you've never done that, I encourage you to do it today. Just to, most people do it through a prayer. I know I'm a sinner. I told this Jewish guy, he said, what you do is by faith, what you need to do is put your hands on Jesus as the Lamb of God. And you need to acknowledge your sin and then transfer it to him and say, I want you to take the penalty for me. I want your death and resurrection to count for me. It's as simple as that. If you're already a Christian here today, I want to ask you this question. What might the Lordship of Jesus Christ look like in your life? He is the Lord of all. One day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess him as Lord. And Peter said, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. What would it mean? Are there areas in your life that you need to turn over to him? In John 14, 23, Jesus said these words, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he is the Lord of all, but also the lamb of God. And I pray, Lord, that as a result of our time, we'll turn to Jesus and recognize the difference that he can make in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.